Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'd like to begin today's show with a quote from the great American thinker, Timothy Fenwick Jr. You might be asking yourself, who's Timothy Fenwick Jr.? He's the character played by Kevin Bacon, of course, uh, in the 1982 movie Diner. So if you recall the movie, there's a moment where he and one of his friends, and these are kind of middle class to lower middle class Baltimore guys, He and one of his friends, I think it's the character played by Mickey Rourke, but don't hold me to that. They're sitting in a car out in the countryside, and suddenly this beautiful and aristocratic-looking young woman uh, goes riding by uh, on a horse, you know, a dressage jumping kind of horse, and she's got the black hard hat thing on. And Timothy Fenwick Jr. says to his companion, do you ever get the feeling that there's something going on that we don't know about? Which, of course, summed up perfectly the way in which dreams, dreams that a person might have, even in 1982, might be permanently out of reach because you weren't really part of the pipeline that led to that beautiful field and that jumping horse and and that uh, lovely young woman. It was 1982, so, I mean, you know, Timothy Fenwick, who was very smart, we saw him run the board, run the board in Jeopardy!, um, you know, he could probably exceed his station. He could probably go to use a phrase repeated frequently in the book uh, we're about to introduce to you. He could go as far as his, as his dreams and his abilities could take him, maybe. But that's increasingly in question. Uh, and that's very much uh, the theme uh, of the book by our guest today. I've been really looking forward to this show for quite some time. The book is The Tyranny of Merit. What's Become of the Common Good? The author uh, is Michael J. Sandel. Uh, I saw him uh, talk about this book with Elliot Gerson uh, on an Aspen uh, broadcast or podcast or something. Uh, and I thought, oh, we got to get him on the show. He teaches philosophy at Harvard University. Uh, his BBC4 radio series, The Public Philosopher, explores philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines. Uh, and he's joining us right now. Uh, welcome to our show, Michael. Michael J. Sandel. Great to be with you, Colin. So I'm going to begin by uh, playing you a a commercial. Uh, It doesn't really matter what it's a commercial for, but this is cut, Kat, this is cut A4. Uh, It's one of the commercials that has come out during uh, the pandemic uh, and the lockdowns. So let's uh, hear that commercial. To all of you doing your part on the front lines or at home, Turning those living rooms into gyms, getting creative in the kitchen, taking a minute for yourself, and trying to get a good night's sleep. Thank you for doing what you can. We're all in this together. So here's a little something to help. So... 
we're all in this together. It's a commercial for Fitbit, if that's important. <laughs> but it's not really important. The point is, that's the argument that's been made over and over. It, it really is a slogan that's been invoked again and again during this time. But Michael J. Sandel, I, I think you say not only are we not all in this together, either the pandemic or the public life of America that preceded the pandemic, but that you say that we were morally unprepared uh, for the pandemic. Explain what you mean by that. What I mean by that, Colin, is that the pandemic arrived at a time when we were deeply polarized, when for decades, the divide between winners and losers had been deepening, poisoning our politics, driving us apart. And the, the rancorous politics we have today is evidence of this. So is the way that we've approached this pandemic. And so the slogans that we hear in that ad and from politicians and from celebrities, the slogan that we are all in this together, it's inspiring and heartwarming in one way, but it rings hollow because people know that the fruits of market-driven globalization have not been shared equally by any means and not only that, we've had changing attitudes toward winning and losing that have led those on top to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that by implication, those who fall short, those who've been struggling, must deserve their fate as well. So this divide between winners and losers has been deepened and abetted by these attitudes toward success which go to the question of merit, who deserves what and why. So, um, the, so uh, let, me, let me go here. So um, Adam Smith wrote one really famous book, and, and a second book that's equally important, maybe more so. Uh, the second one, the one that nobody knows about, is about moral philosophy. And both he and David Hume were big believers in the primacy of sympathy as the glue for a moral society. And, and if we're morally unprepared for this pandemic, it seems to me that Yes, we're structurally morally unprepared because inequalities uh, and unequal outcomes are written into the script of this country and have been for a long time. But it seems to me one of the other moral failures is to understand the position that other people are in, to be willing to wear masks and exercise social distancing, not for one's self so much as for the, the common good, to take the subtitle of your book. And that sympathy, sympathy, that that really kind of basic, uh, you know, uh, sensibility that we would take for granted is one of the things that we're a little bit vitamin deficient in. But maybe you can comment on that. We are deficient in sympathy and solidarity and a sense of responsibility for our fellow citizens. And this is what we're seeing play out in the pandemic. It's also what's fueling the anger and resentment, I think, that has upended our politics over the last four years. In the book, well, the title is, as you mentioned, The Tyranny of Merit. The paradox is that the sympathy has dried up. The sense of the common good has been eroded in part by clinging to a certain version of an attractive ideal, the meritocratic ideal. This is the principle that says if chances are equal, then the winners 
deserve their winnings. And those who struggle must not have worked quite as hard or be, be uh, talented enough to make it. So meritocracy is inspiring in one way, because as politicians across the political spectrum have, have told us repeatedly during these decades of deepening inequality, you can make it if you try. Individual upward mobility, they said, is the answer to inequality. But meritocracy has a dark side, and the dark side is that it's corrosive of the common good. It's corrosive of the shared sympathy, the sense of being part of one society, one community, bound by certain moral and social ties that make us obligated to one another. And the reason meritocracy contributes to the erosion of sympathy in the common good is, well, think about, think about it this way, Colin. If those who succeed really believe that their success is their own doing, then it's easy to forget the luck and good fortune that helped us on our way. It's easy to forget our indebtedness to those who make our success possible. Parents, teachers, coaches, neighbors, communities, countries, the time in which we live. And so an appreciation of the role of luck in life, a sense of indebtedness, these are among the attitudes, the resources, the moral resources that cultivate sympathy, solidarity, a sense of responsibility for everyone. And in part because of what I call the tyranny of merit, the meritocratic hubris of elites that has set in, the resources, the moral sources of sympathy and solidarity have, have been drying up and we're reaping the bitter harvest of that loss. So, you know, in the 90s, the poster couple for the meritocracy was, of course, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and they were from relatively humble origins. He probably more than she. But her father was like in the drapery business or something like that. She goes to Wellesley, Yale Law School. Uh, he goes to Georgetown, Yale Law School. He's from this widowed mother and this kind of unstable environment. And, and they're really smart. And they work really hard. Uh, and, and in a way, even before we get to Barack Obama, they're the embodiment of this idea of individual upward mobility, the rhetoric of rising, uh, as you call it. Uh, and, and yet somehow or other, it doesn't turn into a permanent message. Now, you say in the book that Clinton, Bill Clinton, by the time he got to be president, was already not really going to subscribe to uh, what you would accept as an idea of the common good, that he was basically going to reframe Ronald Reagan's idea that the health of the society and the economy was reflected in its markets. So is that, uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the Clintons and the role that they play in your thinking about meritocracy. Right. And I should say, to avoid misunderstanding, I've voted for the Democratic Party through yeah. all of these years. I've voted for the Clintons. I've voted for Barack Obama. And yet, looking back, it seems to me that a certain deficiency in the public philosophy of the Democratic Party uh, paved the way to Donald Trump. And the book tries to explain the blind spots of the Democratic Party, whose candidates 
as I say, I voted for. Going back to the 90s and to Bill Clinton's presidency, it's important to begin, and I think this, our current moment really has been unfolding since the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the UK said that government is the problem, markets are the solution. Markets are the arena of freedom. They introduced, they brought in the kind of market triumphalist faith. But what happened when they passed from the political scene and were succeeded by center-left politicians, Bill Clinton in the US, Tony Blair in Britain, what those center-left politicians offered was not a fundamental rethinking or challenge to the premise of the market faith, by which I mean the conviction that markets are the primary instruments for defining and achieving the public good. They didn't challenge that. They moderated the, the market faith. They softened its harsh edges. But we never really did have a fundamental challenge uh, to, that, to that picture. And it informed the approach to globalization, to the global economy, to the deregulation of the financial industry that we saw during the 1990s. This was a bipartisan commitment. Uh, Bill Clinton as president, Republicans supported this market-driven version of globalization, the deregulation of finance, the decision not to regulate derivatives. And then we have the financial crisis of 2008. We have a bailout that does not really hold those uh, responsible to account that does little to help homeowners who have lost their homes. And gradually this generates a kind of resentment against mainstream establishment, parties and politicians of both parties. And it's abetted, it's made all the more galling by the message, the affirmative message that if you wanna compete and win in the global economy, go to college because what you can earn will depend on what you can learn. This was one of Bill Clinton's reiterated slogans. And this is inspiring for those who can go to college and can manage to rise, but it's a pretty weak and inadequate response to the inequality that was produced by this market-driven globalization. And it sends an insulting message, which is, if you don't have a university degree, and if you're not flourishing in the new economy, your failure is your fault. That's the implication of this single-minded focus on responding to inequality by promising individual upward mobility through attending college, getting a four-year college degree. So by 2016, as you say, th this notion of upward individual upward mobility is essentially no longer workable in America. We could talk about other countries where it is workable, but it's not that workable in America. And people are beginning to figure it out. And you get 
an electorate that is screaming for change, screaming for some kind of restructuring uh, of resources and power in in this country. The Democratic nominee is Hillary Clinton, who's no longer plausibly, except based on her gender, a change candidate. In fact, she's ensconced now, and Chelsea has a $10 million apartment uh, in uh, in the Flatiron (laughs) District or somewhere, and and Hillary Clinton has given speeches to Goldman Sachs and places like that for huge amounts of money uh, and the electorate is saying we something has got to change and it's we don't believe it's true anymore that we can really change our own destinies very easily on our own and so who steps into the mix this guy let's hear him in Las Vegas oh a a one cat sorry we won the evangelicals we won with young we won with old We won with highly educated. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So plausibly or otherwise, there's Donald Trump uh, saying, Michael J. Sandow, that that I am here. uh, I I am here as a corrective. I'm here for you the poorly educated, the underserved, the the people who really can't even reach some of the rungs on the ladder that would get them started in moving uh, upward. And that turns out to be a pretty effective political message. Say more about it. Yes. By by 2016, the rhetoric of rising, the promise you can make it if you try. Everyone should be able to rise as far as his or her talents will, will take them. This rhetoric uprising had lost its capacity to inspire, partly because it's very difficult to rise, actually, in the United States, more difficult than in many European countries and then in Canada. But more than that, by 2016, the Democratic Party had become more attuned to the interests and the values and the attitudes of the professional classes, professional meritocratic elites, then to the blue collar constituency that once constituted a vital part, a central part of the Democratic Party and its reason for being. And by 2016, when Donald Trump prevails and you played that memorable quote, I love the poorly educated, education, even more than income, education had become one of the deepest political cleavages. Hillary Clinton did very well among voters with advanced degrees. Donald Trump did very well with men lacking a four-year college degree. And so this represents actually um, a, a quite dramatic shift from the the traditional Democratic Party constituency, which included people who were not necessarily highly educated, working people. And the Democratic Party stood for working people against the powerful, against big corporations, big banks, and so on. This had changed by 2016. And Donald Trump manages to tap in to the sense of grievance and resentment among people who feel, who had come to feel, that elites are looking down on them. It wasn't just the wage stagnation, Colin, and it wasn't just 
job losses, however important. It's also that a great many working people felt that the work they did wasn't respected. The elites looked down on them. There was cultural condescension. Donald Trump, for all his lying, the one authentic thing about him is his sense of grievance because he always felt looked down upon by New York elites in finance, in the media, intellectual elites, and so on. And so he managed to tap into this. He's not addressed those grievances in meaningful ways as president. But the Democratic Party had lost the ability to speak convincingly or even to hear the anger and resentment of working people who felt that meritocratic elites, professional elites, were looking down on them. So we're going to pause here. We have we have a somewhat uh, contracted um, uh, time here, just a little tiny bit because we're doing pledge this week. But we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with Michael J. Sandel and pick up uh, with this conversation right where he's leaving it. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. You know, you realize there's more rules to a game show than running for president? Like Donald Trump left a game show to run for president because it was easier. That's right. There's rules to be on Jeopardy. You can't just jump on Jeopardy. You can't throw your son on Jeopardy or your son-in-law. Steve Harvey can't put his family on Family Feud. <laughs> It's like real scrutiny, man. All right, that's Chris Rock, uh, actually just last Saturday night, uh, hosting Saturday Night Live and talking about, I think, some ideas that that map pretty well onto the ideas that Michael Michael J. Sandel, our guest today, um, articulates in his book, uh, which is The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become uh, of the Common Good. Uh, Michael Sandel uh, teaches philosophy at Harvard University. So listening to that clip, it's kind of interesting because... You know, I mean, he's a comedian, but like a lot of comedians, he has a pretty good point, which is that increasingly the rules for advancement as understood, as either tacitly or explicitly spelled out for advancement and success in American life are, are just being violated willy nilly, whether we catch Felicity Huffman and some other people uh, cheating in, in college admissions for their kids or Donald Trump just populating his administration with, as Chris Rock suggests, his son-in-law, his daughter, uh, people like that. There's a way in which one of the things that's happened, one of the responses, I think, maybe to the failure of, uh, of typical individual upward mobility is that people just make up their own rules and get celebrated for it. But please comment. Well, to begin with Chris Rock's uh, commentary on Donald Trump, uh, I, thought it, I thought it was very funny. But following the coverage and cable cable news i think those of us who consider donald trump a menace are making a mistake by focusing so single-mindedly on every serial outrage 
uh, and they they come, you know, by the day, by the hour, by the minute, focusing on every single outrage as if we need new evidence of his unfitness for office. The mistake we make by this single-minded obsession with his uh, string of out outrages is that we don't look in the mirror and ask what should be the obvious question. If Donald Trump is as fit, as unfit for office as we think he is, why did he get elected? And why, uh, until at least this moment, it, it, does this election even seem to be competitive? Why right. is that? Well, can I just turn that around and say, uh, yeah. and listeners to the show are tired of this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I was covering one of the Trump rallies, and Trump hadn't come out yet. This is 2016. Uh, Trump had not come out yet. And I was talking to the people in the audience, and I was surprised. And first of all, they were kind of who you thought they were going to be. They were guys who owned machine shops and stuff like that, and you know, uh, or or auto body shops, and just really felt like they were being left behind in lots of different ways. Um, but this was at a time when the Republican field was still fully populated with Rubio and Cruz and uh, people like that. Uh, they still had lots of choices on the Republican side. Jeb was still in there, uh, but their second favorite person, if they couldn't have Trump, was Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that sort of gets to what you're saying. You know, why is this election so, so close? Why did he do so well in 2016? Because people were hungry for change of some kind. Uh, and right. they'd take Trump or they'd take Bernie, even though ideologically they might seem miles and miles apart. What's your take? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think that uh, we need to ask why. What is this about? What? Trump and Bernie Sanders had in common is that neither made a centerpiece of his campaign the rhetoric of rising, the mantra that you can make it if you try, the idea that individual upward mobility by going to college is the solution to inequality. Uh, in Bernie's case, he took on inequality he took it head on and he said, we have to reconfigure the economy to deal directly with inequality of income and wealth and power. And Trump, for his part, instead of offering the rhetoric of rising or a kind of meritocratic ethic, just spoke baldly and bluntly about winners and losers. And I think we can learn something from this about what was missing in recent decades from the political vision, the public philosophy of mainstream, well, mainstream Democrats and Republicans, but especially mainstream Democrats. And that is, we, we had a tin ear, really. We didn't understand the sense of grievance and humiliation of those great many working people who struggle in this economy and who feel looked down upon by credentialed elites. The emphasis on you solving the problem of inequality by going and getting a college degree, then maybe you will earn more. This overlooks the fact that most Americans do not have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds don't. So it's folly to create an economy 
that sets as a necessary condition of dignified work and a decent life a four-year college degree. So what, what I'm suggesting uh, in the book, the, the tyranny of merit is the diagnosis of the anger, resentment, and grievance. The solution is to shift, to focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition, and to focus more on the dignity of work, uh, including investing, we woefully underinvest on forms of learning on which most people depend to equip themselves for the world of work. I'm thinking of state colleges, two-year community colleges, vocational and technical training. Not only do we need to invest more in these forms of learning, we also need to break down the steep hierarchy of esteem that puts four-year colleges and universities, especially brand name ones, at the apex and offers relatively little social recognition and honor and esteem to these other kinds of educational institutions and the people who study there, who learn a trade or a skill, and who make important contributions to the common good, but ones that are not um, as recognized, as honored, as respected as they should be. All right, we're going to pause here for a second. Uh, and I just want to say, first of all, we're talking to Michael J. Sandel, uh, his book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, is the focus of our conversation today. We're going to take a short break, and so, but don't go anywhere. Um, and that includes you, Michael Sandel. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We're going to ask you to support public broadcasting. Out of the goodness of your heart, some really nice people are going to spell that out for you. And hopefully... Hopefully you'll do it right now, and maybe when you make a comment on the phone or if you give online, you can mention this show, and, uh, and that will redound to our credit, and notwithstanding the meritocracy and the emptiness of that rhetoric, we still want things to redound to our credit. All right, we'll be back. All right. Well, if you listen to the pledge break, you already heard the people I'm going to thank. Cat Pastor's there in the studio uh, making everything uh, flow uh, and making it possible for me to work remotely. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, the other person you heard talking, is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and the producer of this episode. So she's the one who gets me organized. I'm not even really sure exactly what I do or contribute to the show, but I'm I'm sure I do something, right? I mean, it just stands to reason. Uh, all right, we're talking right now to Michael J. Sandel, a professor of philosophy at Harvard, uh, author of The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. Um, so I, in an act of hubris, uh, I'm going to try to discuss political philosophy with Michael J. Sandel. Uh, and so if people know nothing or almost nothing about the philosopher John Rawls, they might know this Rawlsian thought experiment, which basically says you should construct a society that you'd be willing to live in without knowing a priori what your condition or status within that society would be, uh, and that you would be willing to live kind of, you know, in, in any uh, socioeconomic or other sector of that society. Michael J. Sandel, you are essentially making the argument that we did the 180 degree opposite of what Rawls proposed. We essentially have a society that's constructed by people who know a priori where they're going to be and that they're going to be at the top. So, so how do we create better 
and more Rawlsian forms of equality? Well, it certainly is the case that it's not all that difficult to predict these days um, whose children are likely to wind up near the top and whose children are likely to wind up near the bottom. And the reason for this has a lot to do with the educational system in this country. Um, so uh, here, here's one example. Despite a uh, very generous scholarship and financial aid policies, at the Ivy League colleges and universities, there are more, more students from the top 1% than from the bottom half of the entire country put together. So this highlights the fact that we don't live up to the meritocratic principles we profess. Not only that, the ideal itself of trying to deal with the inequalities of our society by telling people, if you go to college, then maybe you will have a chance to succeed, to rise. While that's fine for those who manage to do so, it leaves out large swaths of our population, not only economically, but also in terms of respect and social recognition and esteem. And this is one of the reasons I think that we are so deeply polarized because the, the meritocracy, the meritocratic ideal, which is appealing in one way, is invidious in another. It cultivates meritocratic hubris among the successful, the sense that my success is my due. And it generates humiliation among those who are left out because the message the system conveys is, you are responsible for rising or failing to rise. And so if you struggle, your failure must be your fault. And, and this, I think, it, it contributes to, well, it opens the field for the politics of grievance, the politics of humiliation that Donald Trump is pretty good at appealing to. So, yes, yeah, so you've got a society that's with a bunch of people who were born on second base and think they hit a double and another group of people, a large group of people who could hit a home run, but only get to second base. Uh, this all makes uh, even more sense when you read about Hank Aaron in, in Michael Sandel's book. But um, so one of the things that you suggested, a pretty radical idea would be, and it won't solve everything, but that mm -hmm. for that some kind of lottery system be installed in college admissions so that it would be a tougher system to rig on behalf of people who had elite backgrounds going in. Say some more about this idea. Right. And I don't want to oversell this idea because I do have, as you suggested just now, Colin, a broader range of responses I think we should make to address inequality. But the lottery proposal is this. In highly competitive colleges and universities, there are lots more applicants, well-qualified applicants, than there are places. At Harvard and Stanford, for example, there, there are over 40,000 applicants for about 2,000 seats in the first year class. And the admissions officers tell us most of them, most of the applicants are very well qualified. They could do the work and do it well. 
What I suggest is that the admissions office call out those who are not well qualified. And of the remainder, the 20,000 or 30,000, whatever the number would be, run a lottery. I have a hunch that the level of discussion in my class, classes would not be any less good than it is now. But the real point of this is to send a message to students and also to their parents who are caught up in the frenzied drive to compete to enable their kids to get into these various places, to send the message about the role of luck that is involved anyhow, even without the lottery, in hopes that a greater appreciation of the role of luck in admissions, or for that matter, in the wider economy, could temper at least to some extent the conviction that I deserve it. It's all due to my effort. So, so it's a way of trying to, um, to, to tamp down this, this meritocratic hubris. This does not address the, the tyranny that merit exerts on those who are excluded, and especially working people who don't get a four-year university degree. But perhaps we can come to some of those suggestions uh, in a moment. Well, you may have to come back for a second show. I've only got five minutes left, and I got forty minutes worth of questions to ask you, and that's that's, okay. that's part of it. So you may have we have to do a sequel or something. I, I I would love to talk about that, but I feel I would be remiss if the show ended and I didn't sort of come back uh, to the th- uh, the theme of the book and 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 the way that I see it playing out right now. Because I, I grant, I think it's a terrific book. I, I grant all of your premises, um, but on the other hand, over the last few years, even over the last two years, I've watched first. Fiona Hill and a whole bunch of career State Department employees who spent their lives trying to get really good at and really smart about what they do testify in frustration about the fact that historical fictions are being supplanted or being used to supplant their expert work. And then this pattern has been repeated again during the pandemic. Again, you've got career public servants who are really smart, well-educated, uh, and have been preparing all their lives to deal with something. Something like this, and they're swept aside by this, you know, Hofstadter-like tide of anti-intellectualism. And so, yeah, there is a tyranny of merit, but there's also, I assume, some place for merit and expertise in terms yeah. of guiding our destinies. Absolutely, there is, and it's an important point. So, what we need to do is to account for this backlash, not only against elites, but seemingly against. Uh, science and knowledge and expertise, which we desperately need in the midst of a pandemic. We need governance that draws upon good public health information and uh, medical and scientific expertise. So my argument is, of course, not against the importance of that expertise, but it's trying to analyze why has our politics generated such hostility, such resistance to science and facts and expertise, even the wearing of masks. And I'm trying to give an account of the source of the anger and resentment and grievance and sense of being looked down upon that have created this toxic brew uh, of grievance that Donald Trump has been able to tap into. Until we address that, and it's a political problem, it's a problem of trust, 
It's a problem of authority. It's a it's a problem really of community and the common good. Until we address that underlying problem of trust, we are not going to persuade people who resist good scientific evidence and the wearing advice to wear masks. We're not going to convince them just by saying, please believe in science. We have to address the sources of the mistrust that animate that backlash against sound medical and public health advice. Well, that's going to be half. That's a great place to end in some ways, although it's a somewhat gloomy place to end. But it's also going to be where we have to end. Uh, Michael J. Sandel, you're a busy guy in demand. But if you do want to come back, I'd love to have the second half of the conversation because, yes, I would love to. I would love to, Colin. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, it would be interesting to talk about the fact that, yes, even before we get to that lottery, you know, you can tell an awful lot about you can predict somebody's SAT scores pretty well if you can see their zip code and especially their parents' tax returns. There's a lot right. of, that is sort of written. Our destiny is already written to a certain degree by uh, poverty or, or, or wealth. All right. So we're going to have to stop there. Here come the nice people again who turned out to be the two people working on the show today. Uh, Kat and Betsy are going to ask you to support this show. Please do it. Really means a lot. I saw a few of you did so during the last break. Uh, and yeah, Michael J. Sandel can find time to come back and do a second conversation. I relish the chance to have it with him. Uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If so, make a pledge. Shine and see, you know, I